how to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to Creative Principles. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. In this podcast interview series, I'll be speaking with writers, directors, actors, musicians, chefs, and various other types of creatives as we bridge the gap between creativity and productivity. Here we'll be discussing the habits, routines, and lessons that help promote a successful creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to subscribe on SoundCloud or iTunes. This episode is brought to you by IronJohnGear.com. In between your creative pursuits, make sure to check out Iron John Gear for top apparel, footwear, fitness items, outdoor supplies, sports gear, and much more. Visit the website for top deals on things like lanterns, backpacks, tents, snow clothing, bomber hats, sunglasses, fishing gear, and more. Visit ironjohngear.com today and save money on your next adventure. In addition to Iron John Gear, make sure to also check out Freelancer Class, where you can learn how to become a freelancer full-time or part-time. The online course will teach you how to make money online as a writer, marketer, designer, virtual assistant, accountant, or salesperson. Stay tuned after the show to learn how to get access for free to this $99 valued freelancer course, along with some other free items on our website, creativeprinciples.live. Led by Ethan Hawke, Born to be Blue is trying to expand beyond the limitations of past music biopics. The film opens with legendary producer Dino De Laurentiis approaching musician Chet Baker to develop a film about Baker's life. At the time, the jazz musician was down on his luck in Europe and jumped at the opportunity. Using a film within a film style of storytelling, writer and director Robert Boudreaux invites audiences to watch a black and white documentary style performance before cutting away to reveal a scene within a scene? Um, I think, you know, even when I was a child, I just loved storytelling. I loved, you know, I loved reading and I loved um, telling stories. And as I, as I got older, I, I would, you know, write short stories. And, and then I think when I was probably in my teens, I started tinkering with, you know, shorter little scripts. And then it was in film school that I really started to learn a bit more about the craft of screenwriting and, and, and started writing short films that then led into feature films. Okay. Um, what can you tell us about your short, um, The Deaths of Chet Baker and your interest, how your interest started with Chet Baker? Well, when I was first developing the feature idea, I was approached by Bravo Television to develop um, kind of a side project. And so The Deaths of Chet Baker focuses only on, on his death, obviously, which is not part of the life covered in the feature. So it was a nice way to kind of, for me to introduce myself to Chet Baker and the music while I was developing the, um, the feature. And I think, you know, the original interest in Chet Baker just comes from my love of jazz. And, and I, I think he's just such a fascinating character, uh, full of contradictions. Um, and his story, you know, set in sixties America just raises a lot of themes that really interest me, themes of addiction and race that are, 
you know, still very relevant today. So I, that's how I kind of got into it in the first place. Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate a little bit more on your research for writing this film and the short as well? Yeah, I mean, I think the research um, was the typical research that one does. So I, I I scoured all the public domain sources, and there's a lot for Chet Baker, especially because he served quite a bit of time in prison. I watched everything I could online. I read everything I could, all the biographies. I, I talked to people. You know, so I did all that, but then that led me to um, decide on an approach which isn't a typical biopic. I've, I've become very tired of the cliches of the music biopic genre. And so um, when I found out that Chet Baker was approached by Dino De Laurentiis to stars himself in his own movie, I loved that idea. And I loved the ability to kind of use that idea in a kind of Charlie Kaufman-esque way to um, kind of go against the traditional biopic. And, and it, it was kind of a jumping off point for me, also a way to explore a bit of the backstory in the 50s. And some of the main reasons I decided to do the movie was because I wanted to do something that wasn't traditional, at least in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in my research, I also discovered that he... Um, you know, when it, this missing period of his life in the late 60s when he loses his teeth was very attractive to me for a frame to tell the story. That way I could keep the the narrative limited to a few years, um, which I liked. Okay. All these scenes are very vivid. Um, how much time do you spend writing the descriptions, or do they just kind of come out from the research? Well... I mean, I think because I write and direct myself, you know, my scripts sometimes tend to be fairly minimal because I know I see it in my head and I know I can flesh it out. And I also know that things change. And so I'm not an overly descriptive screenwriter in that regard, Um, even though, you know, I think the visuals, especially on this film, are quite lush. Uh, But that's that's the advantage of also being directing your own script. Mm -hmm. Um, Chet Baker, like as a character, he seems like the entire movie and uh, the audience would assume his entire life. He's kind of towing the line between rock bottom and having everything he's ever wanted. Uh, what's it like writing a character like that? Well, I think I think it's tricky because you know you don't necessarily want to portray that kind of character as as bipolar, but you do need to ensure that there's enough space in the writing to show the different kind of facets of his character. And it's something that when Ethan Hawke came onto the project, it's something that we talked a lot about and further developed the script, trying to find the different dimensions, the highs and the lows and the in-betweens. And, you know, in particular, not portray um, addiction as black and white, uh, to, sh- to show it in a non-judgmental kind of way, which you know, isn't often the case in, in these types of movies. Let's see. What kind of uh, cinematic influence did you have either for this film or growing up to become into, like to move into the business as you did? Yeah. I think my favorite film of all time is probably the one of the films that I liked, uh, you know, when I was probably 13 or 14 that really turned me on to movie making is, is Martin Scorsese's Breaching Fall. And I think that also became an inspiration for Ethan and I on this film because it, you know, although it's a biopic, most people don't know that Jake, who Jake LaMotta was. And there's a certain 
expressionistic, impressionistic quality. It's not really a movie about boxing. It's about violence. It's about other things. And so Raging Bull was a um, probably the most inspirational type of film for me as a filmmaker. And then it just happens that I think this for this particular movie, it, it um, served as a great influence. I think, you know, I think some of the other biopics out there that that don't take the most conventional routes are also inspirational to me, um, and for you know for different reasons. But but that's probably the the one I I most admire. If um if you consider Raging Bull about violence, um, would you consider Born to Be Blue about addiction or about something else? No, I mean I think Born to Be Blue certainly explores addiction. Uh, clearly, it explores addiction. I think it explores race. It explores the choices that kind of artists have to make. Um, mm-hmm. But addiction and the mystery of addictive behavior is certainly at the heart. Certainly at the heart of the film. Okay. What was kind of the time frame between all this? When did you want to write write about the story? How long did you actually spend writing? Um, and then how long did the shoot take as well? Yeah. Um, so we, um, you know, I, I worked on the script for probably at least, uh, three, four years on and off while I was doing other things. And I started putting the financing together. So like a lot of these passion projects from start to finish, it took many years, but it was, it was a year or two of hard screenwriting, I think, and starting and restarting and changing things. And so we, you know, we brought Ethan on in the spring of 2014. Um, Ethan and I then worked on the script all summer, and we shot it in the fall of 2014. That was a 25-day shoot uh, up in Canada, and then we posted the movie, you know, for about half a year uh, in the UK and London, England, actually. And then it was ready to premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival in September of 2015. so that's that gives you a little bit of a sense of the timeline. Okay. Um, so in, in terms of the your writing, your screenplay aspects, what are some of your writing rituals? Um, you know, I try as much as I can to to get up in the mornings and and get some work done before things get too busy. Because I also produce, I find that. Often during the day, I get interrupted a lot, and I have I have trouble just carving out clear time for myself. And so, by getting up early, I have some quiet time. Um, you know, I, I also tend to try to write quickly and do lots of rewrites, as opposed to taking tons of time and getting it perfect the first time. So, I'm very much a rewriter mm-hmm. in terms of the kind of the way I write. Um, what other rituals do I have? Um, I guess those are the those are kind of the main ones. Okay. Um, what do you find to be the most difficult step in the writing process? Hmm. Um, I think often the most difficult thing is is kind of is knowing what to write. Um, it sounds kind of obvious, but I think you know a lot of times. You know, when you try to shortcut and not really plot things out properly, um, that can be difficult. And I, I think 
I think really tuning into the language and the dialogue. Like I, I find dialogue sometimes quite tricky um, to get right, and that that's where I find. Whereas working with actors um, and workshopping it, that the dialogue is a thing that can often be further improved. So I often don't get too worried about having perfect dialogue from the get go. Is there anything you wish you had known um, either before this film or, you know, years ago before you got into the business about either writing or directing? Like any advice you'd like to pass on the future people that are coming up in the business? Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things I've learned is, as most experienced screenwriters learn is that things always just take a lot longer than you think. And I think you have to be very prepared to you know, do endless numbers of rewrites and, and just stick with your project and not get too discouraged and bogged down by it and, and and try to find a group of people that you trust with feedback and, and try to get a sense for when to you know, what battles to fight for and what not to. I think when making a movie you often can get pushed into um strange decisions in writing or casting by by financiers, of course, because you need to get it made. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's finding that balance of sticking to your guns, but still, you know, at the end of the day, it is a practical business. And you need to get things made. So I, I tend to write from a practical place, knowing what the limitations might be. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that some of your um, dialogue kind of comes about or comes alive or gets improved actually on set or with the actors. Is there anything uh, specifically that you can think of, like a certain scene in Born to be Blue that kind of came about spontaneously or that was added to on set? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a couple of scenes in the dressing room at the end of the film between Chet and his manager, Dick Bach, between Ethan Hawke and Count Keith Rennie. Mm-hmm. And those were scenes, for example, the night before in the hotel room, Ethan and Cal and I sat down and, and kind of roughed up some of the dialogue, rewrote some of it, and tried to make it a little more organic. And I think it really paid off because that's it's such an important scene. It kind of sets up the central choice of the movie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to Ethan's credit, Ethan is himself a very good writer and a very smart filmmaker himself. And so he, he had a lot of great ideas, and I was I was open to kind of working with him to, to remodel things and take his input. But that, that that's one good example, I think. Mm-hmm. Was Ethan always the um like he the actor you had in mind for this role? Yeah. Funnily enough, Ethan was my was always my first choice. The project went through some different iterations and we were out to different people for different reasons and mm-hmm. kind of usual thing, but it was so satisfying in the end to land with Ethan, uh, who I always wanted. And that, and you know, and the partnership felt so right and worked so well. So that was, it was really satisfying. Okay, I've just got one or two more for you. Um, this kind of goes back to the raging bull question. But what other films you watch over and over? Is there any certain thing you need to watch every year, or films, other films you love? Yeah. Um, there are certain films, like you know, a film like Vertigo. And it's you know it almost is cliche because everyone knows it's one of the greatest films of all time. But I think 
I think there's a certain mysterious, enigmatic, yet personal quality to a film like Vertigo, which just draws you back in time and time again. So Vertigo is one of those movies that I feel like I need to watch every year, too. Um, yeah, Raging Bulls is a film I've watched a ton of times. What else? Um, there's an Eisenstein movie called Strike, one of his early films before Battleship Potemkin, which is kind of like a jazzy black and white thing. And, and, and there's something about that movie Strike that I, I tend to watch every year to, for whatever reason, it's always very inspiring for me. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share about the film? I don't think so. I think, um, you know, I, I hope people continue to go out and, and see it. And, and I, you know, I do think that <clears throat> the thing that I was I'm most proud of and that I worked hardest on was just, was just this idea of, of trying to at least freshen up the musical biopic genre a little bit. And, and also, you know, very much let the music inform the film. And so, you know, you do write something uh, as on the script as a template and a framework, but I think that, again, it goes to being the director of your own script, but I do think it's important as a director to allow yourself to rewrite in the editing process. I rewrote all along and I, I did, you know, more rewriting in the editing process. And it's, um, I get a lot, I get a real kick out of that. I think it's fun, especially with a jazz movie like this. Well, I love the film. Congratulations on everything. It is getting uh, more and more critical success. Is there anything you can share about uh, what's coming up next for you or a project in mind? I, I have a couple things I'm kicking around and just kind of putting together right now. I have... Uh, a 1940s spy thriller, which is set in the last two days of the U.S. presidential election uh, when Roosevelt was running and World War II was on. That's a project called Charlotte Batter. I've, I've got that. Um, I'm adapting a Dennis Lehane uh, crime drama. Um, I have a political thriller. So there's numerous things um, kind of percolating right now. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. Before you leave, don't forget to sign up for the weekly newsletter where you also get free access to the freelancer course, Master the Freelancer Mindset. This system will teach you exactly how to find clients online, which includes step one, the psychology of the mindset, step two, how to create a killer profile, and step three, how to find quality clients. This online course is valued at $99. It can be yours for free. In addition to the free course, you'll get access to the ebook How Hollywood Screenwriters Annihilate Writer's Block. This contains advice from Aaron Sorkin, Kerry Fukunaga, and William Monahan. You can find all of this and more on creativeprinciples.live. Visit the website for new interviews, articles, and the daily blog. That's creativeprinciples.live.